So I was meeting with a good friend of mine, and uh, we were just talking about the new year and what to expect with the new year coming, and he began to share with me that he doesn't really do New Year's resolutions. Instead, what he do, does is he adopts a word for the year. In other words, he picks kind of a word, and then everything that he does, he kind of funnels through that word and that kind of idea for the rest of the year. For example, he might choose the word build. And so for the rest of the year, he's constantly thinking about how he can build his relationship with Christ, how he can build his relationship with his wife and with his kids, and, and how he can maybe build his physical body or, or maybe even his company. You kind of get the idea. And so it began to immediately make me think of kind of if I were to choose a word for Mercy Hill this year going into 2019, some word that would help us to be anchored, that would help us to be reminded of, of what we need to be doing, what word would that be? And the word I kept going back to is the word fear. Now, um, now, I know some of you are thinking that's so typical of Pastor Mike. He's got all of the English language to choose from. He could say that we're going to think about prosperity and love and joy and happiness, and he picks fear. For some of you, that's probably not a big surprise. Um, but the idea of fear is, understand, I'm not talking about just any kind of fear. I'm not talking about the kind of fear that I saw on my son's face when I hid in his closet a couple months ago and jumped out when he came to it. I'm not talking about that kind of fear. I'm talking about uh, the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. Uh, this is a theme that we actually see throughout the Word of God from the beginning all the way to the end. And uh, the, the, the concept itself, again, is found in Proverbs 9, 10, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible says, again, in Psalm 113 and verse 14, he will bless those who fear the Lord. Now, I doubt that there's anyone in here that doesn't want the wisdom of God or the blessing of God. The question then is, how do we live in light of the fear of the Lord? What exactly does that mean? And I think it could be quite confusing. In fact, I've read a lot of explanations by a lot of different preachers and authors on what the fear of the Lord actually is, and they're not all completely agreed upon, but uh, there is one description that I think really nails it. It's by the reformer Martin Luther. Uh, we have to go back to the 1500s, I think, to really find a good explanation of this. And by the way, if you want to know, if you've got a real theological question that you want answered, read Old Dead Guys, all right? That's uh, the best place for it. You say, is there no good theologians today? Well, of course there is, but if you read them, they're just going to keep quoting Old Dead Guys. And so, uh, so Martin Luther gives this really great illustration, and, and he explains it this way. He, he explains it by making a distinction between what he calls servile fear and filial fear. Now, don't worry about those words. Just understand the two different concepts. The servile fear, he says, is a type of fear that a prisoner might experience in a torture chamber. The type of uh, dread, anxiety of, of being beaten in the fear of hearing or seeing the appearing of this, ruthless, uh, of this ruthless taskmaster coming his way. He says, that is not what the fear of God means. Not at all. Instead, he says that the fear of God is this filial fear. It kind of sounds like family because that's the concept. It's a type of fear that a son or daughter has of their parents. It's a, 
It's a type of honor, a tremendous respect that they have for them, a desire to please and, uh, their, their parents and, and, and a fear that they may displease their parents. That's the kind of fear that we're talking about. When we talk about a fear of God and we talk about a fear of God going into 2019 and saying everything we do, we want to do in light of the fear of God. That's what we mean. We want to do everything that would bring joy to God and to be able to please Him, whether it be in the area of our finance or in our relationships or in our workplace. That's the fear of the Lord. Now, the question is, okay, we, we got that, but what does that look like exactly? Lived out in life, what does it look like when somebody is living uh, in light of the fear of God? And I think we see some examples, examples of that in our passage this morning. And we see it played out between two different characters. One is an unbelieving Amalekite, and the other is a God-fearing king by the name of David. So here's what we want to do this morning. How do we know when we're living in light of God? There are three things that we become aware of when we do that. Three things. First of all, there is an awareness of God's awareness. There's awareness of God's awareness. Look, if you will, in verse 1. We see the beginning of the story. He says, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, here's what you have to understand. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel connected. They just kind of divided it, but it's one big story. So what we do is we kind of pick up in 2 Samuel exactly where we left off at the end of 1 Samuel. At the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 30 and verse 31, we see two battles going on simultaneously. One is with David and the, against the Amalekites, and the other is Saul against the Philistines. And so what we find here is that this is the end of those battles. Uh, David was fighting with the Amalekites because while he and his army were out kind of pilfering and fighting uh, little wars in some different tribes, uh, the Amalekites actually came to Ziklag where he and his family were staying and took, his took their wives, took their kids, and, and, and took their stuff. Uh, the problem with this was that David and his men liked their wives, their kids, and their stuff, and they wanted it back. And so they go after these men, they cut them down, they bring all their family and their stuff back to Ziklag. That's where we begin here. There was also another battle going on simultaneously again, and it was against, it was against Saul and it was against the Philistines. But this didn't end nearly as well for Saul. In fact, Saul, the Israelites, were defeated. He was put to death. His son Jonathan, the rest of his sons were put to death, and many of the Israelites. And so we pick up here. David just gets back. It's his second day. And then finally on the third day, an Amalekite that was actually 80 miles away at the battle where Saul was at now comes back to where David is to report that Saul has, has been killed, and he gives us very clear indication of how his life was taken. Look, if you will, at verse 6. The Bible says, And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. And so I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought it there here to you. Now, understand this. We read this description of Saul's death, but if we had just formally read, the, read 
how Saul died in the previous book, in 1 Samuel, you would see that these are completely two different stories. At the end of 1 Samuel, the author of both books explains to us and gives us insight how Saul actually died. He said there that what happened was Saul had been, had been wounded, severely wounded by the archers. He was about to die. He was about to perish, but he wasn't dying fast enough. And he knew that if the Philistines got a hold of him, that they were going to put a whole lot of hurt on him. So he asked his armor bearer to run him through with his sword to end his life. But the armor bearer is like, I'm not killing the king. And so Saul actually falls on his own sword, committing suicide. Well, that's not the story that we just heard from this Amalekite. So what are we supposed to make of, of this? Well, what we make of it is the Amalekite's pants are on fire. All right? He's a liar, liar, pants on fire. All right? He is telling a lie. Now, the key is he's really good at it. It's not good to be a good liar, by the way. Uh, some people really struggle. You can see right on their face. They're lying right away. It's bad when somebody is so good like this guy, you know they're lying because their mouth is speaking, right? And so he knows that he's a liar, but he's so, he's so good at it. He gives all this wonderful detail. He says, yeah, man, he was just leaning up on his spear. Whoa, wow. Okay. And then talks about the conversation that they have back and forth. He even brings you know, the crown and brings the, the armlet to him. So he's believing all of this. And what we find is David uh, takes onto this and believes this hook, line, and sinker. But what the author wants us to know is even though the Amalekite has fooled David, he has not fooled God. David doesn't know what was said. David didn't know what happened. God knows what was said and what happened, and he even knows the intent of this man's heart. He knew that he didn't actually take his life, but he knew that he was doing this for his own selfish gain, and God would ultimately judge him for it. There is a constant theme in the Word of God that the Bible is trying to teach us and reminds us that God is always aware of what you and I are doing, what we are thinking, and what we are saying. He even knows the intents by which we ultimately do it. Psalm 44 verse 21 says, Would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set your iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. In Luke chapter 12 verses 2 through 3, it says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. God is aware. You know, it's interesting to me if you've ever met somebody who was in secret sin for a very long period of time. And, it, and a long period of time is, I mean, it goes by years. And nobody knows it. Nobody even has a clue. And all of a sudden, it comes to light, and everybody is so shocked. And that particular person that is caught in that sin, how do they often respond? Brokenness, tears, they feel horrible. The problem is, and the difficulty is, for those outside looking on, it's hard to understand why they're really crying. Are they truly crying because they're broken over the reality of the sin in which they've been committing? Or are they actually broken and are they crying simply because they have now been discovered and they've been caught? The problem for that person who thinks in that terms, who says, oh no, my sin has now been revealed, now people know about it, is that they've been deceiving themselves and they've misunderstood. They were unaware that God's been aware the entire time. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly from the first time to the last. Not only did that, he actually knew when they were conspiring in their own mind to do the very act of evil before the act of evil was ever done. God is aware. 
Now, this can really kind of apply two ways, can it? I think one is in a negative way, where we say something like, God knows exactly what it is that you and I are doing. Do you feel that, right? When we sit back and go, well, God knows. And the truth of the matter is, let's be honest with you, there are some who are even here who are living in secret sin. You watch things, do things, go places that you know that you're not supposed to be going, doing, seeing. There are are sins in your heart that you're fostering that you would never want anybody to be able to know about. And our greatest fear is that will be discovered. You and I are already discovered. God knows the intents of the heart. He knows what's going on. So I think the application to this should be this. For those who would sit there, and many of us who would have any type of secret sin, for us to sit there and go, God knows. God knows. I need to repent from that sin. I need to turn and I need to, I need to do what is right in the sight of God. That's a negative way of getting us where we need to be. But I think there's a positive way to apply this as well, isn't there? Instead of sitting there and go, God knows what you are doing, there's a, hey, God knows what you're doing. I um, played a lot of different sports in high school. I was good at none of them. And so you know how like some of you are cheering on your kids and you're like, man, if they're just good enough, if I could just send them enough camps and just spend enough money, they're going to get a scholarship one day and they're going to do it. And really, if you had just saved the money, you could have just paid for the kid's school without him having to get a scholarship. Well, my parents never did that with me. Uh, There was never a day where they were like, man, he's pretty good. He might get a scholarship. It was more like, wow, he's just really wasting our money. All right, that's more of kind of how it was for them. And of all the sports I was not good at, I was probably the best uh, is uh, at soccer. And I just love soccer. And, you know, I, I, I just think because most of the time, really, very rarely, you know, were people looking at you when you were playing. You know, you could be on defense and the ball could be on the other end. And no, I mean, you could just sit there and look cool. You'd be like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Look at it. I'm just checking it out. Look at, look at me, right? It's only every once in a while that you're exposed. And so uh, I, I was playing soccer, and, and I remember very clearly that my dad wouldn't often be able to come to the games. And so oftentimes when he did come, and, and I could always notice him, he always wore this like leather jacket, this light-colored leather jacket. And uh, whether it was hot or cold, he was always wearing this jacket. And, and I remember out of, the, out of the peripheral of my eye seeing my dad walking into the stands after the game had already started, and he would just kind of be there. And there was something in me that compelled me to work harder, run harder, kick harder, do everything that I can to be the very best that I have. And don't understand, I, this wasn't from a negative motivation. This wasn't from some sense of, of me trying to fool my dad in some, some sinful heart of hypocrisy. This was a healthy desire to be able to please my dad. This was a healthy desire for my dad to be pleased at the effort and the energy in which I was performing before him. And this is, this is what it means to be in the fear of God. It's not only that God knows the things that we're doing wrong, he knows the things that we are doing right. So when we get into 2019, what's driving us and motivating us is, hey, guess what? I'm aware that God is aware of everything that I do and in everything I want to do, I want him to be pleased. Amen? All right, I'll take that one amen. That was, uh, that was meaningful. Let's go on to point two and pretend that never happened. Number two, there's an awareness of God's awareness. Number two, there's awareness of God's sorrow. There's awareness of God's sorrow. Look at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, for his son, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now, what the author's doing is he's, he's, he's giving us a very descriptive picture 
of how David and his men were mourning. And they were demonstrating every kind of possible outward demonstration of sorrow. He tore his clothes. It was just basically kind of like a cultural way of, uh, of showing people that you were mourning over something, something that had deeply saddened you. Just as your clothes were torn, so, so too was your heart torn. Of course, there is the weeping, actual tears coming down the eyes. Uh, then, of course, there was the fasting. And so oftentimes, you know, we think of food in terms of celebration, right? There's never been a time that I ate one or 12 Krispy Kreme donuts and where I was sad. I was always rejoicing when I ate Krispy Kreme donuts. It's a happy event. And so what happens oftentimes is people don't want to appear as though they are happy, so they put away the food. They fast for a while. You've maybe even seen folks when they have a broken heart, they the people around them encourage them, just, you got to eat something, you got to eat something. They're like, I, I can't, my, my heart is broken, I feel sick to my stomach, I have no appetite. No, I'm just the opposite. I get sad and depressed, and I eat everything not nailed down, right? I mean, I just eat it all, but there are some people that are like, just balloon up when I, you must be really sad, I am. And um, that was kind of like, kind of like the, what's that big red guy? The Kool-Aid man, yeah, that's right. I look like the Kool-Aid man, just not as red. But the idea there is, 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 is that they're mourning all of this, and that's significant, but it's not as significant as why they were mourning. Did you notice the reasons why they were mourning? Some of them don't surprise us. One of them does. He's mourning, David is mourning because of the loss of his friend Jonathan. This was his BFF. These guys got along. They were covenant friends. They made such an agreement together that basically said, I would lay my life down for you. That was that kind of relationship. It's not hard for you and I to be thinking about the kind of sorrow that we would experience by losing somebody so close that we know. Uh, he, and then he begins to mourn even over his countrymen who died in battle. It's not hard for us either. Even to this day when I'm watching the newscast and, and you know, they don't talk a whole lot about the war all the time, but maybe just streaming at the end, it says that some of our military folks, people I don't know, their names I don't know, where they go, but when it comes up and says, hey, three died here or two died here or one died there, there's a part of my heart that gravitates to that because they're Americans. They're a part of us. So none of that is surprising, but what is surprising is that he is mourning the death of Saul. Now, if you were, how many of you remember when we were in the book of 1 Samuel? You remember that? Very good. It was a year ago, so I'm doing well. Okay, good. Um, in 1 Samuel, we had preached through the book of 1 Samuel, and, and what we found there is we found out that this relationship of, between Saul and David was not a good one. In, in fact, David was always faithful to Saul, but, but Saul was never faithful to David. It all began really at the death of, uh, of, um, of um, Goliath, when David was sent out by Saul himself to be able to kill this giant, he kills them, and immediately the people come back saying, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands, and then all of a sudden a root of bitterness and resentment and jealousy begins to build up in Saul's life. And from that point on, the Bible says that he wants to kill him. And so in two different occasions, not once but twice, he throws a spear that tries to pin him to the wall. How does, how does, how does uh, David respond? Well, he, he responds in faithfulness. Twice he has the opportunity opportunity to be able to kill Saul. Once, when, when Saul's 
relieving himself in a cave. I mean, that's what the scriptures say. Another time, when, when Saul is in the middle of his own camp, he's, standing, he's sitting there, and David and another man sneak all the way and come right next to the man, and he had an opportunity to kill him, but he doesn't. How does Saul repay this act of mercy and act of grace? He tries to kill him all the more. For the next several years, he begins to pursue him. He begins to try to hunt him down. There's no rest for David and his men. They're always on the move, and now he dies, and David's not celebrating. You would think that at this particular point, they'd pull a little Wizard of Oz, right? Ding dong, the witch is dead, the witch is dead. And they would be all excited. He's gone. This man who's caused so many problems in our life is gone. He doesn't. He has great, deep sorrow. Why? Because he's not displaying the sorrow of man. He's displaying the sorrow of God. Because God has greater sorrow over what is eternal than over what is temporal. God's people don't often have that right. They often have it reversed. You and I often, what, what, really, what really spend so much time on is the bad things that happen to us, the mistreatment that people do, uh, hard, hard knocks in life, physical ailments, and we mourn over that. And let me suggest something. There is a time to mourn over that. David, throughout the Psalms, mourns because he's, he's running from Saul and then the difficulties of life. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm saying it's not the place. I'm saying that there is a greater level of sorrow that you and I begin to experience and express when we are living in light of the fear of God. We are not so much sorrowful just because of all the little things and difficulties of life. We are sorrowful because of the depravity of the world around us and because of the sin within the body of God's people. That's why he's mourning. Here was a man, Saul, that had been chosen by God to be king. Here was a man who had been anointed. Had been anointed. God's plan was to use him to be able to lead God's people, but he's not able to do it. At first he does. He's filled with the Spirit of God. He leads them. He protects them. He guides them. He shepherds them. But then because of sin, God takes his hand away. He takes his spirit away, and he takes the throne away. And now, because of the fallenness of God's man, what happens? Now, we see him weeping. Do you see the difference? He's not weeping because of the difficulties he went through. He's weeping because of something far more important, the fallenness and sin of God's people. This is, where does he get something like this? Remember that David is always a picture of the king who is to come, isn't he? He's a great king, but he's not the king. The king to come is who? Jesus, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. We see the same spirit within Christ. Notice this. When we look into Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, when you look at that passage, it's a passage known as the lament, Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. The word lament simply means to mourn, to weep, or to sorrow over. Here's the context. Jesus what had been, at this point, had been rejected, confronted, and plotted against, against the scribes and the Pharisees. And he is well aware that they will not stop until they kill him. In fact, he knows that they're going to put him to death. They, he knows every bit of it. It's a full reality. He kept saying, we must go to Jerusalem, because he knew what was going to happen to him there. And so what he does, the way that he responds, is he calls out seven woes to those Pharisees and to those scribes. He tells them, here's what you've done wrong. Here's what you're guilty of. And then he begins to mourn. But why does he begin to mourn? 
Does he mourn because they made his life difficult? Does he mourn because he's going to be put to death? Does he mourn over all that? Here's what he mourns about. He said, he, he, it says there, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not let me. What caused him the greatest grief was not his own personal physical ailments, but the spiritual well-being and depravity of those who were around them. Wouldn't that be a great way to live 2019? Is of the people in Mercy Hill, if we just didn't go around, now note, belly aching over everything. Again, let, let me make sure I understand this. Please understand, there is a time to be able to come to the body of Christ. Are you all hearing me close and saying, hey man, I'm overwhelmed with everything that's going on. I need prayer. There's a time and place for that. That's a place for the regular community. But when you and I truly live in light of the fear of God, our sorrow matches the sorrow of God. And the sorrow of God is not primarily for the temporal. It's primarily for that which is eternal. Do we got that? Okay, two of you, we are doing so well with this. So we see here three things, really. We see two things. The third thing is this, point number three. There is not only an awareness of God's awareness and an awareness of God's sorrow when we're living in light of God's fear, uh, the fear of God, but there is an awareness of God's discipline. Now look at verse 13. It says, And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men, and he said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, in that little section, there was one sentence that I just had a hard time understanding. Hard time understanding, hard time explaining, didn't know why it was there. It was the part when he says, where do you come from? Because at this part of the story, he already knows where he comes from. He knows that he's an Amalekite. He knows that he's coming from the battlefield. So why does he ask the question? He's trying to clarify the level of guilt of this man. Because if this man is not from around there, you ever hear that? You ain't from around here, are you? All right? And, and, and that's kind of here. If he hasn't been through all this, if he hasn't known that Saul was the anointed king, if he didn't know that not only was he the anointed king, but that he had been after David, and David had many opportunities to be able to kill him, but he didn't kill him. Why? Because he feared God. He goes, it, it would, then, then maybe there would be some more room. But this man sits there and says, I'm an Amalekite, which lets him know you knew very well what you were doing. You sinned with knowledge. You guys do know that there is a more severe penalty for those who sin with knowledge than in sin and ignorance, right? All sin is sin, but there is a sin that is far more serious. When you and I know what is wrong, but we do it anyway, that there, there's often a greater judgment or discipline by God for that sinning within knowledge. And so what happens here? Well, what we find is when he comes to the realize that he knows all about this, that's why he asks the question, how is it that you, how, listen to this, how is it that you were not afraid? That you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. See, what he couldn't understand is, he goes, I've been in the same exact spot. I had the opportunity to be able to take his life too. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Why? Because I had an honest, healthy fear of the discipline of God. 
This man had no fear of the discipline of God at all. So it was the fear of God's discipline that kept David from doing what this man said that he ultimately did, even though he didn't do it. You know, people today have a hard time. This is one of those messages, by the way, when you, you don't hear a lot of messages on, hey, fear God. Um, it's not usually what fills up places. In fact, these are the type of messages that some of you, and I love you dearly, and I, I want you to be able to come back, but you're like, yeah, just not our church. Um, we talked about discipline, and I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so uh, let me say this. The, the Bible, though, teaches us a great deal about the discipline of God. It teaches us that, see, what happens is a lot of people sit back and they think to themselves, there's no way that, that, the, that the fear of God, or excuse me, that the discipline of God matches up at all by the mercy of God. How can God discipline us if he loves us and he's merciful to us? How can he show mercy through discipline of God? So they think that those things just don't connect at all. But if you read in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews says, no, these are in conflict with each other. They mesh perfectly together. In fact, the discipline of God is a demonstration of God's mercy and his love. Because when he disciplines those that he loves, here's the idea. He judges all sin, but he only disciplines his children. You know, you and I do not discipline other people's children well. We may want to discipline them on occasion. You may have wanted to discipline my children as well, but you're not as good as disciplining my children as I am, and I'm not as good as disciplining your children as you are. Why? Because when I discipline my children, I'm just looking for justice. I'm just looking for what they, for your children, I'm just looking for what they deserve. That young man needs to be sat down and swatted on the backside, all right? I'm not saying I would do it. Don't call anybody, all right? I'm just saying, all right? But that's how we think. But when it's your child, there's a level of love that that stranger does not have. And it is difficult to discipline that child. It is your love, but you do it out of an act of love. Why? Because if they continue the path that they are going to go, what's going to happen? They are going to hurt themselves or destroy themselves. So this is why God is this way. And so what does, what, what, what is it? I love this verse in Hebrews 12, 7. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. This is what I think this means. I think it means that the greatest motivation for you and I to obey God is our overwhelming love of his grace and his mercy. Right? I don't, I don't know. Thank, thank you very much. I, I don't know. I've gone past time. Okay. The, it, it just, it, by, by you and I sitting there going, God, the reason I obey you is because I love you because you first loved me. You sent your son to die a miserable death, one that I deserved, and now you save me not because I've worked or done anything. You work in spite of what I've done, and therefore I love you with all my heart, and I want to be able to follow you, not because I think I'm earning your favors, because you graciously gave it to me. How's that? All right? And so you sit back, and you look there, and you go, God, I just want to be able to serve you, and I just want to be able to love you. And that is the motivation by which we do everything. Amen? Here's the problem. Sometimes we're just not there. Sometimes we're just not there. Sometimes we've just messed with sin too long. We've allowed it to linger too long. We haven't run the opposite way. Sometimes we mess with it and we play with it like it's a little pet. And it gets us and it gets on our flesh. And we're not feeling real lovey-dovey or real, real concerned about the holiness of God. So in those times that we are not living as we ought to live, there is still that fear of, guess what? Here, I would love for you to obey me out of sheer love of my mercy and grace. But I will tell you, if you're not there and that's not a motivator, I love you enough to let you know I will discipline you if you do that which is wrong. 
And, and, and it really does work. I remember hearing about this little girl, and she, was, she, she had gotten in trouble with her dad about her grades. So she went to her second grade teacher, and she said, Miss Peterman, I don't want to alarm you. I don't want you to be afraid, but you need to know that my daddy said that if my grades don't improve, someone is going to get a spanking. <laughs> All right? Now, she got it, but she didn't get it, right? The whole point of the discipline of the father was to correct her, to be able to keep her from doing what she ought to do. And, and, and let me say this. In 2019, some of, us, some of us are going to be aware of God's awareness. And some of us are going to be in sin, and we're going to have to turn from that, and we're going to have to sit there and go, God, forgive me, restore me. Here's the beautiful thing. He'll do it. He'll do it. Don't even wait. Just do it. Just repent and turn and go. He's got more grace than you have sin, by far. And so we go to him, and then there's going to be times where, at the same time, we're just not feeling it. We haven't been walking in the Spirit. We just haven't been walking close to him. We haven't been confessing our sins up to date. Does this sound familiar to anybody? And then we're going to sit there, and there's going to be some times, and we're going to be thinking about doing the wrong thing, and what's going to restrain us at some point is remembering this message on this day. If I go this way, I'm going to experience the discipline of God, and I do not want the discipline of God. You know, if, if you've ever been disciplined by God, let me, give it, let me give you an expert account of what to do, all right? An expert account, because I have been disciplined more times than you can imagine by both my earthly father and my heavenly father. So let me tell you what you do. My dad used to be one of those uh, criminals that would spank children. Now, listen, just before he's passed away, don't call the cops, whatever, we got it, he's gone. But he would spank. And so we had this, do you remember the little flip patty with the little ball thing? Tick, 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 tick. No? Yes? Okay, think, little thing. All right. And so what he would do is, without the ball and the rubber band, he would just use that to, you know, pop us, you know, that type of thing. But I learned something. Isn't it interesting, parents, now, I know none of us do it now, but let's think about a long time ago, all right? A <laughs> long time ago, when, a parent, when, when, the, when the parent sits there and says, I'm going to pop you on the rear end. I don't want you to move. <laughs> You're going to swing at me, and I'm not supposed to move? That's the punishment for me just to decide to sit there. I'm not going to move. Your natural response is to do what? Get out of the way, all right? And so my dad, I would sit there, and he would say, hey, don't you move. And then he would sit, and he goes, it's going to be worse if you move. And so I would try to move, and I'd try to swing out of the way. That meant, now I don't know how much of you know a lot about physics, but this does not bode well for you. What this does is allow his entire arm to swing through and to have more velocity and more speed so that when it goes to your backside, it, you feel it. It's worse. So I learned something. It's better to draw into him then go away from him. <laughs> so when he went to spank, I would just sidle up as close as I could. And he'd be like, he'd be like boy, back up. No, we're going to get closer to you. Man, you get so close that he's kind of short-arming it like this. And, you know, and, and you've got it. You're, you're fine. And so the idea is when we find ourselves, even this year in light of the glory of God, when our motivations is not right, and when it doesn't restrain us, if it doesn't restrain us, we remember the glory of the discipline of God, but even the discipline of God, we do not sit back questioning whether God loves us. We know that he loves us because it's there to restrain us from destruction, and instead of drawing away, we draw closer to him. We draw closer to him. So three things, just very quickly in close. I'm going to ask Nick to be able to come at this time. Just in close, three things to be able to think about. And when we live in light of the fear of the Lord, we, we, we are aware of God's awareness. 
God knows every intent, everything that you're doing, even right now. Nobody else does. If you're in need of repentance, repent. If you are sitting there going, no, for the most part, I just want to glorify God, then enjoy your Father watching you do what is pleasing to Him. Grand motivation. Second, that we need to be aware of God's sorrow. Let 2019 not be a year that we're so overly concerned about ourselves and so concerned about the markets and the, and the retirements and, 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 and physical, but all the, they happen. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to get support for that. But let this body at Mercy Hill have the sorrow of God, of that which is eternal, of the lostness of the world and the sin of God's people. And finally, let us be aware of God's discipline. Be aware that He will discipline. Here's your warning. Here's my warning. He will discipline, not because He has something against you, but because He loves you. He loves you. There might be some here today, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, this is all great, and this is a great lesson, but in saying all this, we never want to leave out the gospel, right? So where's the gospel in this story? You never want to preach a lesson without the gospel. Then it's just a, hey, do better. We're not trying to do that. Where is it? It's all through this text, but even one place, let me give you an example. One place that just reminded me of the gospel was when this Amalekite comes to David to talk about the king's death on the third day. And what I begin to think about is I begin to think about Saul was a picture of the great king who was ultimately to come, but he failed. He failed. He was supposed to be a picture. The people needed a king that would not fail them, but he failed. And on the third day, he came and said, he failed. He's put to death. God's hand is away from him. But we're reminded that when the king of kings came and he died and he was buried, he rose again on the third day. And he was your king. He was my king. He is our king for all those who would repent of their sin. Turn from sin, saying, God, I've sinned against you. I've done what is wrong. I've done what is right in my own eyes. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to submit myself to you. And by faith, I receive what you did on the cross. I want to live for you in light of the grace and the mercy that I've shown. God will save you exactly where you are. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for the power of your word. God, I pray that this morning that, God, that we will not be entertained, but we will be transformed. 